I wanted to study business. That's why I chose Cal. Cal at the time had the best or the second best, depending on the year, um, the best um, undergraduate business program. I started um, at Anaplan pretty early in their journey, and it turned out to be like a very wonderful, long, successful journey. The way I, I deal with people now is a lot more tempered and I think a lot more empathetic in general about another person's point of view, where they're coming from and how do we all kind of work together and stuff like that. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Bhavik Vashi is the Managing Director for Asia-Pacific at Cardoff, a software company that aims to create more ownership in the world by creating a central registry of private assets, providing infrastructure for innovators, and enabling more liquidity. Carta is a privately held company with investors like Andreessen Horowitz and Lightspeed Ventures, and was last valued at more than $7 billion as of its Series G round in 2021, which was supported by Carta's own private capital markets platform called Carta X. Before Carta, Bovic spent nearly a decade at Anaplan, across a variety of different roles and regions, where he helped build and scale the company from Series C until an IPO in 2018 and an eventual sale to private equity for $10.4 billion in 2022. Hi, Bavik. So nice to meet you today. And I'm super excited to get to know you. I've never spoken to you before, so I'm really excited. Thanks. Uh, super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I think the question I always try to ask about first are people's origin stories, and we want to go like way back. So I want to hear about what your childhood was like. I think you grew up in the US, right? Yeah, that's right. Wow, way back, huh? Um, so I guess we can go all the way back to the beginning. Um, you're right. I was born in the U.S. and raised in the U.S. as well. Um, I was born in a very small town in South Carolina. Um, and uh, my parents of, uh, are of Indian origin, so they had migrated from uh, India over to the U.S. My dad got his master's degree uh, in the U.S. and uh, a uh, very traditional kind of um, Indian story, arranged marriage. Um, I think my mom got engaged when she was 16, which is um, kind of crazy when you think about it in the modern context. Um, so they kind of moved over uh, and then had me pretty much right away. And then I grew up across uh, a bunch of different states in the U.S. Uh, I lived in eight different states, which is always a fun fact about me. So that's, that's a lot of moving. Um, and uh, yeah, but I spent most of my kind of formative years in uh, California. Um, I did kind of my late later grade school in California, and then I ended up staying in California both for college as well as my the start of my professional working career. Is that is that good on the origin, or should we go even deeper? <laughs> oh, you can leave it to me to ask the questions. <laughs> okay. I think I want to know why you moved around to like eight different states. Was it because of your dad's job? Um, it was. Um, my dad was super ambitious. Um, and he was the first in his family. So he's one of seven um, kind of um, brothers and cousin brothers, long story, but basically they were all raised together. 
So it's one of seven. And uh, he was the only one who didn't own a business. So he was in corporate America, right? Um, and the other six all owned businesses. So he was super ambitious, super aggressive. And yeah, he would move us around quite a bit if he got a better job offer somehow. And so, yeah, that's that's really what uh, moved us around. <laughs> and I think I read somewhere that your dad was an engineer, right? And that might be the reason you're so into tech now. So what did that sort of career for your dad, um, how did that career for your dad affect you? Um, what kind of engineering were you exposed to in tech? Yeah, my dad is an electrical engineer. Um, so his master's is in electrical engineering from Georgia Tech. And so he ended up working um, broadly in kind of like the semiconductor space. Um, and uh, it's an interesting thing. I, my, I think my dad's career had a lot of influence on me, honestly, because um, A, you know, obviously he was super ambitious and aggressive. So he would always be talking about work. And I think even before I understood what all those things meant, you know, he just kind of, um, I think, just absorbed a lot of uh, that from him. And he had an interesting journey. He started as an engineer, um, but he very quickly, uh, I don't know if it was his, his because of his interest or because he realized maybe that was what the market valued, that he realized that, yes, he had a technical skill set, but he wanted to layer on more kind of business. Um, and, and so he ended up switching from like being an engineer to uh, being in pre-sales. So he was much more involved in like kind of demoing the product and prospects and, and walking them through value proposition of, you know, why... Um, that was going to be good for them. And then eventually he ended up actually doing product marketing, which was kind of this like perfect intersection between stuff he really knew well, which is a technical concept, but then how do you like market them and sell them to people? So um, yeah, he had a journey from basically technical to, to, to business. Um, was going into product marketing something that was already big back then? Or was it like the early de- year days of product marketing? I think I think it's I think it was around. Um, it's not like today. I think today product marketing is like a is is a is a big uh, a big deal. Um, and I think we have so many products in the market as well. And then uh, if you just combine those two things, like it's easy to feel very inundated uh, when it comes to like being um, educated and, and and made aware of different products and stuff. So I'd say it was like I think it was a I think it was around, but it was it was more like the early days of what that meant. Um, and obviously for him, it was, it wasn't software, it was, it was hardware. And so kind of very different, um, from what I've spent my career doing, which has been uh, all software. But, um, I think, yeah, just his, I think his job and also his very, I'd say personal interest in electronics and, um, tech in general, like our house always, despite what our earning levels were, (laughs) I would say somewhat disassociated from that, we would always have some of the latest gadgets. Um, so, you know, if there was like a new TV that came out or a new, you know, mobile device or a new printer, even I remember how excited my dad was about laser printers and how fast they could print. <laughs> like, I, it was, yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that, um, you know, we ended up spending a lot of time doing in the house. We used to go to my favorite electronics store called Fry's Electronics. And we would spend like two hours there evaluating the pros and cons of like five different laser printers. And I, I think at a very subconscious level, doing that with him just got me more exposed to like how people purchase, you know, tech. <laughs> and that was very consumer, but I think it ended up translating and impacting the way I think about my career as well. So what else did your childhood look like apart from electronics? What were your hobbies? Um, so I grew up a, a passionate basketball fan. 
pretty much as far back as I can remember. I wanted to be a professional basketball player. Um, that didn't work out clearly, but um, that was a passion of mine. Um, and it ended up being a passion of my uh, my younger brother. And because we moved around so much, we became very close to each other because we were the the constants in each other's lives. And, and so um, we both kind of grew up watching basketball, playing basketball, playing basketball video games, like really just all out collecting basketball cards. We were we were big time. Um, so that's one that stands out to me. Uh, and the rest was just, uh, I don't know, probably like normal, normal kid stuff. We we're just like playing a lot and uh, hanging out. And um, yeah, I don't know. But that, that's the one that stands out to me, basketball. And the other thing I guess I should point out is I'm a big uh, I, Bollywood fan. So uh, kind of the Hindi film industry. Um, I grew up on that. I think because my parents migrated to the U.S. and then immediately had me and then later my brother they have held a lot of that Indian culture very close to their hearts. And the one way that they found was easy to kind of stay connected to Indian culture, Indian tradition, Indian like uh, value system was watching Indian movies. And so I grew up basically not having watched any Hollywood movies. Like I've fun fact, I had never seen Lion King until I was in college. I hadn't seen like Beauty and the Beast. I hadn't seen like any of the, movies that people see when they're growing up but, but i have seen like every indian movie that came out from the 90s and the 2000s and, and beyond so yeah basketball and bollywood are the two hobbies that stand out for me have you watched titanic you know what interestingly i have seen titanic and i only saw that because i, I had been visiting uh, my uncle and he had two daughters that were much older than me and they were like <laughs> you need to watch American <laughs> movies. You live in you live in the U.S. <laughs> we ended up watching. They had a VHS tape of Titanic. So yes, I saw Titanic on an old school tube tube TV. So why do you like um, basketball so much? I think one of the other interviews that you had, you said you wanted to be the first ever Indian superstar NBA player. Is there one yet? Because <laughs> I don't follow basketball. Is there still an opening uh, for you? <laughs> <laughs> you did your research. Um, that's that's awesome. Yes, um, that like I said, that was my dream to be a basketball player. And it, had I made it, and had I been successful, I would have been um, the first Indian basketball. No, there's not really. Um, there's not like a. I think there were like one. There are a few um, Indian people um, who made it to the NBA. Like they've had a roster spot, but there has never been like a consistent Indian NBA starter. Like somebody that you know, mainstream people would know. So I know that opportunity is still out there. I think it's probably a too late for me. Um, I'm much more likely to be a, a coach or a commentator or none of the above. I think my my dreams of being a player are probably gone, even though I had a chance. I am, I'm 193, 194 CM tall. So like I had a chance, uh, you know, I, but uh, yeah, it just didn't work out for me. Was your brother also interested in doing the same thing? I don't think he ever wanted to go pro. I mean, he played basketball. He was super into it, just like me. But um, he, yeah, he kind of wanted to do something different. I think he grew up with the, the second kid syndrome of like, okay, <laughs> if my brother is doing that and he's kind of the best thing since sliced bread, according to my parents, then I'm going to go do something completely different. So he actually was um, big time into theater, theater and drama. 
So for a while, he wanted to be like an actor. And growing up in California, that was like, you know, it's like, hey, okay, you go to LA, you can, you can try that, that out. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not that far. Yeah, he was in the right state, right place. He ended up going to school, college in LA at USC, uh, partially because of that. Like, he thought, oh, that'll allow me to do some like acting stuff on the side. But, oh, in USC yeah, film so, school, you mingle with the future <laughs> filmmakers. <laughs> That's right. So that was kind of the idea. But no, once he got to USC, he decided um, he, like me, like my father, just ended up kind of doing business uh, or just kind of being broadly in, 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 in kind of corporate sales what, uh, him as well, actually. Yeah. But what do you think you like so much about basketball? Like, why did it stick so much to you? Honestly, um, it's hard to say. I think, I don't know. There's something just beautiful about the game. I think like um, it has a mix of like the, the kind of the formations and and tactics and and finesse of of like a soccer, but it still has a little bit more physicality in terms of like kind of American football. Um, and so it was kind of this like perfect middle ground. And I don't know. I just when I watched basketball, it was like a mix of art and science in a way like you know you could really see the strategies playing out you know using their physical attributes where they stand on the floor how they move around how they create space um at the same time there were just stuff that was beautiful the way they shoot and pass and dribble and stuff and uh i think the other thing i like about basketball is you know it's a team sport but it is also there's like an individual component within the team and you could see both of those playing out and in, in, at kind of the same time as well when you watch basketball. So like, you, know, you have to have those individual stars, but then they also have to bring out the most in their team. So I don't know. I think it just like brought a lot of different elements of life into a very simple game, competitive game. And of course, I love competition. Like I love, I'm very competitive. And so that for me was another aspect, which I loved. Okay, time to fast forward. So now you're at university, you get to Cal. Did you still have your dreams of being a basketball player then? Or if not, what did you have planned for your future at this point? No, those are those are dead. <laughs> dead on arrival. <laughs> dead when on I arrival. Got to Cal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? No, those, well, it, well, I didn't really succeed in high school. So okay. <laughs> the chances of, of thriving in college and college is a precursor to the pro. So yeah, no, that fell apart in high school itself. Um, so by the time I got to Cal, it was, I knew pretty much what I wanted to do, which is I wanted to study business. It's why I chose Cal. Cal at the time had the best or the second best, depending on the year, um, the best um, undergraduate business program uh, in, in the U.S. And so it was perfect because for me, it was public school. So like half the price of private school um, because I was living in California and it had like either the best or the second best undergraduate business program. So I was like, perfect. Um, and it was, you know, located very strategically right next to San Francisco and kind of the Bay Area and where the, the tech scene was just, uh, you know, really taking off. And like, I had some awareness of that, like, obviously, the college, kid, you're not like overly entrenched in, in that stuff yet. But I, I did, I knew that the job opportunities were going to be good there. So I knew I wanted to do business when I started at Cal. Um, I knew that at Cal, it's, it's, it's difficult because you get in. And then you kind of just do a general education for two years. And then midway through your second year, you have to apply again to get into Haas Undergraduate School of Business, which is like a subset within Cal. And so, um, yeah, that was my plan. It was like, go in, apply to Haas, get in, and then do my third and fourth year exclusively business courses and get like my MBA during my undergraduate uh, experience itself so that I could save time later and just 
get to work. <laughs> I was very, I was like a little bit too, um, I think in retrospect, I worried too much about like just going fast. I always wanted to go fast. Um, and I, again, probably came from a little bit from my dad and what I saw, how the way I saw him approach his career. So I just wanted to go even faster and achieve even more at an earlier age. And so, yeah, I was always looking for like the most efficient path there. So were you like one of those college students that really was super career focused? You're always studying or always like uh, doing the career related stuff or were you like somebody else? <laughs> so I was very career focused for sure. I was not always studying. So I'd say those were distinctly different. <laughs> I was I was very career focused. I knew where I wanted to get to, what I wanted to be able to do. But yeah, studying... Um, my approach to studying was, uh, I was, I would say I thrived in constraints. And what I mean by that is I basically procrastinated. <laughs> so I would get, I would get up really close to a test or a report being due. And then I was like, okay, now I only have 48 hours or 72 hours. And then I would just like disappear for those, that amount of time and then pop out on the other side with hopefully a good outcome. And it worked. I mean, it pretty much worked for me. Um, and uh that was my style and then when i wasn't studying i was i think what i did really well is i was like i was always i've always been very social so anytime i wasn't studying i was super social i was always kind of trying to meet people and have a good time and and uh i guess i was networking before i knew what networking was um really i was just being social and i loved having a good time so yeah i spent a lot of time doing that okay and then after you graduated you went into consulting was that the plan that you had for yourself or what was your thinking yeah, at that time? I, honestly, so actually, so my I started, um, I worked at KPMG, um, but I started in their audit um, practice. And so technically, I would say I was in accounting, um, to be really accurate. And no, that was not necessarily by design. I think because I was, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a little bit of detail, maybe it's <laughs> because I had focused so much on getting into Haas, right? Like I said, my first two years, I had to do well enough to get into Haas, right? And I found out I got in and I was over the moon. It was probably one of the happiest days of my life where I was just like, I did it. I did it. I'm in the Haas. Like, this is amazing. Like, I'm going to just be set. And so what I was able to do then in my third years, um, I had the opportunity to go abroad because of, I had pushed all my credits up front. And then I was, I really wanted to study abroad because I've always, I've been social. I love people. I love culture. History was always my favorite subject. So I was like, I want to go to Europe somewhere. And I ended up choosing to go uh, to Barcelona uh, because I spoke Spanish and I learned Spanish in school. And I tell you all this because that was my focus. And once I got into Haas, that when I realized that I didn't realize when I signed up for all that, that I was going to miss recruiting season oh, uh, okay. from college. And so then all of a sudden it was like, well, if you're studying abroad from January to like May and your internship has to start in May, right when you get back, you have to land a job before you go abroad. And there were only two, as far as I was aware, there were only two mainstream uh, industries that would recruit in the fall. One was audit, big four, basically. Um, and I think the other was uh, consulting, uh, if I'm not wrong. So I went for both. But I just, I ended up getting the job at KPMG. And at the time, I, I like you, I was like, oh, big firm, big consulting firm. Like, I don't think I fully appreciated what audit was. Like, I knew a little bit, but not, like, I didn't really understand what it meant. I thought it was 
I think it was, I thought it was going to be a lot more consultative than audit is. And so I was just really happy to get the job offer because then the stress was off my back and I could go abroad and have my life experience, eat, pray, love, and then come back and have a job. Um, so it was, you know, this, it's ironic because my whole life I spent like optimizing for career. Yeah. And then like one of the more important first things I was like optimizing for going abroad and didn't really take that proactive of an approach to choose that specific job. I thought I was doing consulting, but I ended up in audit. So the the plan of going to start achieving really early and very fast, uh, you kind of <laughs> shot yourself in the foot. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I think at a, I think in, in my head, in your head, I still did it. Oh, in, okay. my, in my head, I still did it because I was like, okay, KPMG is like a big brand. It's like KPMG, EY, PwC, um, you know, Deloitte, and Accenture. Like these were the five kind of brands in my head, and so. I was like, great, if you start at one of those, you're like set up for success and then you and then you do this and then you do this. I had a very vertical view of okay. how things would go. So yeah, I yeah, I think the, the 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 mistake I made is I just didn't understand the difference between being an audit versus being okay. in consulting within those firms. <laughs> so you're still on track, still on track. You're so pretty Somewhere happy when you track. started the the job. Okay. And when, then bef- when I'm before I started, I was happy. And then when okay. I started doing the job, I was not happy. <laughs> So why were you not happy? <laughs> because I, I auditing was not for me. Honestly, uh, it is. Um, it's just very um, structured, right? Like there is only one correct way to do accounting. It's mandated, you know, by regulation. That for us, it was US GAAP, and obviously there was IFRS. But it was like there was. It was not a. It's not a creative field um, by definition. It was very structured. And it's very hierarchical. So when you start, you're, you know, an associate and you have like all these levels till you get to partner. And so there's not, so culturally, like that has implications. And I ended up working on one of our biggest teams, which was the, the Wells Fargo account, which is a, like most audit clients, you might have three or four auditors on site. Wells Fargo, we had like a team of 25. So I basically had this like, small fish in a big pond feeling and i that it's not something i thought about before but i realized like i i didn't particularly enjoy that plus the job itself i didn't enjoy because auditing is effectively checking someone else's accounting so it's like someone did the accounting and you're checking their work and at wells fargo it was like three layers of it because they they did the accounting they had an internal audit department that did their check once and then you were check number two as the external auditor So I was, yeah, I had this feeling of like, I can do more than this. Like, I felt like I just wanted to be more problem solving, more creative, more unstructured. And yeah, so I very quickly realized that. And I think that was a good thing. I guess the feeling is like being the editor of the editor of the editor, right? (laughs) Something like that. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's not even creative content. Like, it's not like, okay, I tweaked a word, like I put my stamp on it. It's like five foot five is 10. Yes. Great. Next person is like, yep, five plus five. I checked it. It's still 10. And then you're the third line of defense saying, yep, five plus five is indeed 10. And I now put my stamp on it. So for me, it was just like, yeah, not not for me. As a third line of defense, did you still catch a lot of things? Or like, was it just one per per 10 pages? What did it look like? (laughs) Not, Not a lot, to be honest. Like, see, that to me, as an auditor, that's probably like, that's the thing that people think about. The auditors catch fraud. Like you find the fraud. And like, if you expose a fraud, like that's probably the coolest thing an auditor might be able to do. I'm probably feel like I'm 
I'm not talking, you know, down on auditors. I actually think it's a great, like it's a very fundamental job and just for different personality types. So uh, no, I did not find very many mistakes. Uh, shout out to Wells Fargo and their internal audit department. They were running a clean ship and I was just confirming how clean their ship was. Um, so yeah, that also, yeah, if I had found something, maybe I'd been like motivated to find more or something, but yeah. So how was it to jump to Anaplan? How did that happen? <laughs> Super, uh, honestly, out of desperation. Um, so <laughs> I uh, audit goes through this period called busy season where basically financial filings happen and then like you have to audit everything and it's it's intense. Um, your normal work week of like 40 to 50 hours ramps up to like 70, 80 hours and certain weeks could get even crazier than that. And once I quickly realized that I don't like what I'm doing and I don't get excited about getting out of bed and I'm not excited about going to work and I'm spending a disproportionate amount of my waking hours doing it, I was like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> so there was this like urgency that kicked in about finding another job. And I'm so early, like relatively early in my career that I just felt like making a change is um, kind of risky or whatever. Like you have a good brand on your resume. Maybe you should just stick it out, whatever. Um, my parents were like, are you sure you just don't like working? <laughs> I was like, no, no, I think I like working. I just don't like my specific job. Like if I had to wake up at the same time and go put in the same amount of effort, I just want to go do something different. But they challenged me on that because it was my first job. And so fair enough. But when I saw busy season coming up, um, I was like, okay, I have to leave and I have to leave before busy season because why would I go through that like for four months when I already know I don't like it and I'm not here to stay long term and so again out of desperation basically i found um uh, i just started you know asking my friends and then anyone i knew about like jobs and what's out there and whatever and at the time one of my close friends was working at um deloitte and so i was like okay maybe i'll come to deloitte and maybe i'll switch into consulting because like i said i was in audit so i wanted to get into consulting i thought that would be better and she said you know if you're going to come work in my like my team where we do consulting you might as well check out this company called Anaplan because all of the projects that I get staffed on, we are implementing this software called Anaplan. So you could work at Deloitte and just do Anaplan work all the time, or you could just go to Anaplan and do Anaplan work all the time. It might be worth you checking out the software company. I was like, okay, I'm desperate. I don't care. I'll talk to whoever, like, just give me an interview. And, um, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Like, I totally stumbled into the opportunity, to be honest with you. Was it the only job you had lined up? Or did you have, like, other wow. options? That's a great question. I have to think. Um, I want to say it's probably the only real offer I got or, like, real, like, serious qualified conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I, I was just like, okay, great, I got an offer, accepted, get out. You know, oh, it was okay, very, okay. like I was, Urgent. I was operating in desperation mode. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then I think what's really interesting is your your time there. You joined them at Series B or Series C, right? And then up until right. IPO, all in yeah. San Francisco, mostly, I guess, like mostly yeah. since you started in San Francisco. So I started in San Francisco. So you're right. Yeah, I started um, at Anaplan pretty early in their journey. And it turned out to be like a very wonderful, long, successful journey. Um, I spent almost 10 years there in total. And um, the first the first three, three and a half were I was based in San Francisco. 
And then I got this amazing opportunity to uh, transfer over to Singapore to help kind of really like scale our Asia Pacific business. And that's where I spent the last six plus years. Okay, um, I got it flipped so, over. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were mostly in San Francisco before you went to Singapore. No, yeah, so actually now I know mostly Asia Pacific over the course of the animals. But like, yeah, like I said, like maybe three and a half, six and a half, uh, roughly in the split. So I, what I found interesting is that you, your journey was like consultant and customer success. And then you like rose the ranks of customer success up until VP customer success. I think. And then you actually became the general manager of Asia. So what did that journey look like? Um, I mean, how do you stay relevant in the company throughout that kind of journey from series B, C up until IPO and not just stay in the company, but rise the ranks of whatever like department you were in and then end up leading an entirely yeah. different one, the overseeing department, I guess, in a sense, as a general yeah. manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, good question. Um, I I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not going to say that what I, well, I mean, what I mean is like, I don't know that what my, what worked for me is is necessarily indicative of like a playbook that anyone else could use, but I, but I know my experience. Um, so uh, to breaking kind of that question down, um, how do I, I, I think the reason I stayed at Anaplan so long um, from my perspective is that we had a, you know, we had a very legitimate uh, product, uh, innovative product, something that was genuinely disruptive to what existed prior to our existence, right? And so I think that gave all of us confidence and also a sense of like purpose that what we're, we're we, we believed what we were selling. Um, and then the second thing is that because of uh, how early I joined, it was really easy to quote unquote be relevant in the early days because not that many people. <laughs> so it's like you really know what everyone's doing, like it's a proper startup. And so I think going from that audit environment where it was so big, like I said, small fish in a, in a big pond. Now, maybe I was still a small fish, but I was in a much smaller pond. And so relatively speaking, I could see the impact of my work, like making a difference. Like if I did a really good job consulting a customer and then they went live and then maybe they decided to buy more software or implement something else in our platform, like, you know, I, I was a couple rows away from our CEO I would sit directly across from our chief customer officer and I would get, you know, recognized for that. They would like, you know, be excited about it. And then they'd say, Hey, that's really good that you did that with customer X. Why don't you come talk to customer Y? And so there was this like very positive feedback loop about just like being kind of doing my job as well as I could. Uh, and, and how much more responsibility I was asked to take on. Um, because effectively it was like, it was seen as working. And I think my, I think my um, my superpower, I guess, at the early stage, um, which was maybe a little bit more unique, is I was both um, technical, like I was one of the best, you know, consultants we had in terms of like really technically using our product, writing formulas, and being able to like do multi-dimensional modeling, like pretty technical stuff. And then I was also very comfortable um, being in front of customers and trying to present ideas and simplify um, those thoughts and and kind of represent their business process in our software. So I think being kind of good on the communication and more like people skills side, but also being super technical uh, ended up being a superpower for me in my specific job, because that was kind of exactly what customers seemed to need. They needed someone who could do both. And yeah, that, that just ended up being me. So it worked out really well. And 
I just kept getting more responsibility uh, and I kept taking it too. And I, and I would say the other thing I, I was, I am, you know, I was pretty um, uh, ambitious and aggressive in terms of taking on more responsibility. I was never satisfied. It was like, okay, I'm doing one project. Maybe I could be doing two and I'm doing two projects. Maybe I could be doing four. And if I could do four, if I could just have a few people helping me, then I could probably take on like a bigger book of business. Like I just always kept thinking about how do I have more impact on the company? Like how could I do more? And the company was in a perfect spot because they were looking for people to do more. It was like perfect timing, I think, on both sides. And that just kept going and, and kind of evolving. How did it feel, though, um, on the personal side, being part of that journey from when, I don't know how many people you had at that time. I could give a guess like 80, 100, up until the end point. Something like that. Where, you yeah. know, you at first were an employee. Now you have a lot of people that you're managing. It felt, I mean, it felt fun, uh, honestly. Um, I, I don't think I had an appreciation for how special that journey was because I was really lucky to be going through it in not my first job, but I had my second job and, and I was having this like really positive experience. We went from like, like you said, B round, C round, D round, E round. We were raising money and growing the team and kept getting these really marquee customers and everything just kind of kept growing and our offices were getting bigger and upgrading and we were like, just everything was happening. And I, I don't think I appreciated how hard that is to do. Now at Carta, we, you know, we work with startups every day. I know how hard it is to get from zero B, to one. C, D, and then, <laughs> Yeah, totally. Like even from zero to one and one to two and two to four and four to eight, like that beginning start is so hard to yeah. even get to that later growth. Um, and, and each stage of growth requires different types of people and different has its own different challenges. But I, in my own journey, was just there for the ride almost. And, and I got to experience it and live it, um, which um, which taught me a lot, which is you know super useful now. So yeah, it felt great. Um, and honestly, to me, I think the cool thing at Anoplan specifically is it always felt like I was just, it felt like I was working on a giant group project with a bunch of my friends. I mean, that's that's how I approached work. It wasn't like who reports to who or what are our departments or anything like that. It was like, okay, this is a big group project. The goal of this group project is to grow the company. How are we doing it? <laughs> and And just like in group projects, everyone kind of figured out what they do well and there were like natural leaders, informal leaders. There were, you know, all that kind of those dynamics emerged pretty naturally um, for me. Were you guys like actually friends or like just friends in the office? No, uh, you know, we we're uh, we we're actually friends. A lot of us. I mean, not all of us. Right. But like um, definitely made a lot of friends through work. Um, some that I'm still, you know, in, they, they attended my wedding like these yeah definitely real friends um and so that was cool and some of them we made you know we became friends at work and oftentimes i actually recruited a decent number of my friends from college into anaplan because i was one of the first to join and i was like hey guys this place is amazing it's a cool product i love working here why don't you guys come work here as well and then they all ended up coming to anaplan and we all ended up working on the same team and later i i i, I ended up managing a, a number of them but it was it was um yeah it was easy to work with them because we we all knew each other we respected each other and so that just enhanced our friendship even more so now i've known them for you know a really long time across various different phases of life what were the hardest parts though of the process um throughout anaplan i know it's a long time but do any one or two really stick out <sighs> um 
I think obviously the hours in the early days were insane. Like I talked about busy season being like a three or four month stretch where you were working 80 hours. Um, I remember because when I started, I was in consulting. We used to have to do timesheets because the time that we worked was theoretically billed out to our customers. And I would, I was regularly clocking timesheets of north of 70, 80 hours for like a year and a half. Um, which is really intense. That's like an eye banking kind of level of work, right? And just in terms of sheer hours, I didn't. I did it by choice. No one made me yeah. work that much. By the way, it was more just like I was super excited and passionate about what I was doing, and the only way I could take on additional responsibility is like do my day job, and then I started working on all these extra initiatives and projects and other things. Yeah. So I was doing it because I liked it, but that was hard. Definitely took a toll on me. Um, where I realized that's that's not sustainable. You can't do that forever. Um, it affected some of my personal relationships. It affected like my my health. Like I deprioritized other things in favor of of this. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure if I would do anything differently if I went backwards because I, I I am happy with kind of where, how things ended up, um, and I'm very you know thankful and grateful for where I am today. But um, that was tough. And then I think the other um, tough parts was just basically when we went through those transitions as a company, because I think as an employee, again, you just don't appreciate what you're going through. If you've not done it like four or five times before, then you don't have any pattern recognition. So when we would have leaders change, right? Like leaders we liked would be exited or choose to leave. And then new leaders would come in and they'd have their own way of doing things. And we all kind of felt some type of way about that, either positive, negative, neutral, whatever. But those transitions were challenging. And like we would have attrition you know, across the organization at each of those transitions. Um, and so I think those um, were challenging. And also with every new leadership regime, you'd have a different point of view on go to market or a different point of view on what matters, what doesn't matter. And and you'd have to kind of, the whole organization would kind of pivot slightly in terms of how they work. And so just not getting change fatigue. I think a lot of my colleagues who didn't end up staying for 10 years, um, left at various transition points because they're like, oh, okay, I'm over it. We just keep changing everything. Or like we keep doing something different. It's just whatever. They, they just got that change fatigue and they left. Um, I also had moments of that, but I think at least for the most part, I was able to internalize that as like a interesting problem solving opportunity and being like, okay, let me put myself in their shoes. Why are they doing this? What's the rationale? Do I agree with it? If I do, great, let's get on this shit. If I don't, maybe I can have like a debate, an intellectual debate with them and understand it. Like I just took it as learning opportunities. Um, and so, yeah, that, I'd say those were, those were kind of the two is like the, just the sheer work effort as well as like the amount of change that you deal with when you're scaling that fast. Did you ever make any big mistakes that taught you a lot at that time that you would be willing to share? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I did. Um, I mean, I definitely did make, I definitely made a lot of mistakes. Big mistakes. Um, I mean, definitely depends on your definition of big. Um, your definition as any works. Yeah. My, my definition. I, I think over the years, definitely, obviously you miss on some hires, right? Um, you hire people that are, uh, that you wish you hadn't, <laughs> I guess in short. Um, I think, uh there are i think there are probably times where i could have 
probably like handled specific um, situations better just in terms of like dealing with people. I think that was more early. I think I got a lot better at that as it just through experience. But in the early days, I think I was trying to find a way. I may have not been like the easiest person to work with because I just, I think I was very passionate in my head. I was passionate and I was, you know, trying to solve problems and I would often convince myself I was right. <laughs> and so <laughs> that, you know, if someone else didn't necessarily feel that way, then, you know, they, they definitely could have seen me as being like a little bit um, challenging or stubborn or, 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 you know, um, strong-minded or just uh, maybe aggressive. Like, I don't know, I can't say for certain, um, but I, I know in my heart that the way I, I deal with people now is a lot more tempered and I think a lot more empathetic in general about another person's point of view, where they're coming from and how do we all kind of work together and stuff like that. So um, I know it's not a very specific mistake, but I, I think it's like a, it's a theme at that stage. And then definitely specific hires, which I obviously don't want to mention names, but specific hires are like, I look back at them like I should not have hired that person. Like that was a mistake. Um, and sometimes they were, you know, relatively big mistakes because once you hire someone, they're going to be in the organization for at least like six months, right? Almost always like it's really hard to pull the, pull the, pull the plug faster than that. And a bad hire in six months can do a lot of damage um, to the culture, not to the strategy. I mean, you can manage around the strategy much more to the culture to the people that they manage, especially if they're a leader or a manager and the, like the ripple effects of that um, can sometimes be felt long after they're gone. So those are, that, those were my biggest mistakes, the, the mishires. I think a lot of people talk about how hard hiring is and how hard it is to, to make the right hire. But um, in your experience, I mean, you've probably hired a lot of people. Were there any clear signs that you, or I guess red flags that you ignored or you didn't see only in hindsight? that we can now learn from. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love to tell you that like I came up with a new qualification methodology for hiring that is so much better. The reality is it's very difficult. I think hiring processes, no matter how hard you try to make sure that they evaluate the right skills, behaviors, and try to simulate what someone might you know, be like in, 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 in reality and in, in practice, uh, in the role, you just, you don't have the luxury of that much of time with that person. You know, most hiring processes that most you can have five touch points, right? Um, this is assuming you're not like a, a Google or an Apple where it's like, okay, you know what? You want to work here. Great. You don't want to work here. Great. Like they can, they can have a 15 step hiring process and they'd still have the same number of applicants, but at Nanoplan, it was like, no, no, you're trying to also kind of sell people to join yeah. because it's like, hey, you've not heard of us, but we're great. Trust me, kind of come in. And then at the same time, you're trying to qualify them. So to be very honest with you, um, nothing like stands out other than just, I think over the years, I've come to disregard, or, or maybe I'd say I, I prioritize um, character and um, and motivators and, and uh, a lot more of the somewhat intangible stuff um, more than I value uh, what I see on the resume. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely relevant and useful, but I just mean when I, when I, especially my role in, in hiring processing now is a much more trying to do that, uh, that side of the equation versus the, the, the hard stuff. Like they've sold this segment before they've worked this country before they have worked at three other com companies just like this before. Like those mean 
a bit less to me than maybe they would have initially because, um, yeah, I just think that the former is much more important than the latter, even though it's a lot harder to qualify. And I'm not saying I have a great, like, a, a, you know, math equation for that, but, but still that's where my attention is. And what's the craziest story you have from working at Anaplan throughout those, I think you said nine years, right? Six plus three. Yeah. <laughs> You want you want like a rated R or PG thirteen? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. There are lots of kinds of crazy. I think we have That's to keep right. rated yeah. PG for the podcast. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah, no, like you said, there's a lot of there's a lot of crazy. Um, the craziest. Okay, story maybe is- a San Francisco crazy and a Asia based crazy. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, so. I think an Asia-based crazy um, that stands out to me is probably um, we had, I mean, there, there, there were a few examples of this, but there were some pretty um, insane, like, just travel schedules that we've executed. <laughs> like, there was one time where we needed to see a client in China and um, we couldn't get, like, the right... Uh, work visa or, or kind of the the permit to go travel uh, to China, um, and and so what we had to do was basically there's a you can do a stopover in China and that's like a different so you're there for like 48 hours or something and it's like a you're going from let's say Singapore China and China to uh, Russia and then Russia back to Singapore then you're allowed to transit you get it's like transit visa and so we ended up having to do uh, that <laughs> to be there for the meeting uh in china so we had this like ridiculous itinerary where we were flying from singapore into beijing and then beijing like we were there for 48 hours and then we were going to go to some random third city that we didn't need to actually go to just to be in beijing for those 48 hours because the meeting like the client wanted to meet us in like basically two days from whenever the like we booked it all really quickly and we just couldn't get our stuff in time so that was pretty crazy um because when we were in China, they were like, we were staying at a hotel and they were like, uh, the, like a government official came and like checked on our, our hotel room doors. Like, so we wake up in the morning, we're just sleeping and it's like, you know, we hear the pounding of the knocking on the, on the door. And I, I, this is, by the way, it's also my first time in China. So I'm like, I, I open the door and there's a guy in a full military outfit with a gun. And he's like, I'm like, oh, okay, what's going on? Right. And, and they're like, they don't say much. They just kind of come inspect the room and then leave like they don't say kind of why they came or what they think i think they were just checking to make sure that as in transit people we were staying at the hotel we said we were staying at that we didn't have like clothes for more than just the the day or two that we're supposed to be there i think that they're just making sure that we 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 leave um and but that was super scary (laughs) for me it was pretty crazy sorry and i remember i was traveling with a colleague and so as soon as they leave the door they leave my bedroom i go to the phone and i call his room and i'm like Hey, um, there was just like a military commando that showed up at my door. Um, oh, and they did ask us, they're like, oh, okay, you know, when are you like, when did you get in and when are you leaving? They did ask me those questions. And I was just like, I, I gave them the honest answers of my dates of travel. Um, obviously didn't mention like the meeting I had in the middle. <laughs> and so I, I told, I told them like, they're going to be a military commander that shows up at your door, like probably really, really soon. And just be ready for these questions. And like, yeah, say and, the same things really, that I said. <laughs> just say the truth, which is that we came yesterday and we're leaving tomorrow, which is true. And then don't say anything else. And um, 
and sure enough, they they also checked on his room, and then we proceeded to have coffee and breakfast, and just be like, "Well, that was kind of crazy." <laughs> Wait, was this to like close a client or or what? <laughs> yeah, this was pitch. I mean, yeah, it was really pitching. Um, oh, I would okay. Say like mid mid sales cycles, we've been talking to them over Zoom, and they just were like evaluating us and some competitors, and they really wanted to meet us in person. And they like we just we knew that if we could go meet them. To see them face to face, like we would give them a lot of confidence in our ability, and so um, we just decided it was worth doing. And at, honestly, at the onset, we didn't realize it was going to be tricky to do. We were like, "Yeah, yeah, for sure, we'll be there Friday. We'll hop on a plane tomorrow, and we'll be there, and like all good." And they were like, "Great, great, great. We look forward to hosting you." And then it got complicated, <laughs> um, and we did not have like all the necessarily the corporate governance back in those days to like really advise us as employees to say like this is how you can do things and this is how you, you would just book travel yourself expense it it was uh, a bit uh yeah, startup in that sense yeah okay what's san francisco crazy <laughs> wow okay san francisco crazy um okay so san francisco crazy probably is there were there was a day a uh, specific day i remember where i had kind of just double booked myself multiple times throughout the day. And so I had this impossible schedule to, uh, to, to execute. Like it was physically impossible to execute the schedule where I was literally supposed to be in two meetings at the same time, I think twice in the same day. And overall my day had like five or six meetings and they were in a mix of San Francisco and South Bay. So you can't, that's, that's like an hour travel as well. And so basically, I'm in this crazy meeting schedule. I'm like, and they're like all like kind of big pitches or big kind of sales conversations. And you make one, we're traveling down to the second one. And I am in an Uber and I've got two computers open and I'm attending two meetings in an Uber. And I'm like muting myself on both computers to like make sure that I'm in talking to the right one. Um, I luckily was able to tell them that I was, you know, in the car. So I, I would turn on my video and be like, Hey, I'm in the car. You know, it's going to be really annoying for you. So I'm just going to turn off my camera. Um, and then I did the same with the other one. And I'm like basically doing two meetings at the same time in the car from SF to South Bay, going from meeting number one to meeting number four. And I'm doing meeting two and three. And then I did that the same thing on my reverse commute back to SF that evening. So I think, yeah, like I honestly think I did like six customer meetings that day in like the span of six or hours but it was yeah it was weird okay now so now you're in asia i think you've how many years have you been in asia now at this point maybe four uh, five six and a half going on seven wow so bad at math <laughs> I'm really bad at math. Okay. Because I did I did six, six and a half with Anaplan and now I've been with Carta for five months. So yeah almost uh, almost seven at the end okay. of this year. Oh, yeah, there. I did it again. I think I did three plus two. That's why. <laughs> okay. So so now you're in Asia. What's the biggest difference about working in Asia slash Southeast Asia um, from your time, you know, in Anaplan here and Carta here? The biggest difference versus uh, the U.S., you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the, like, it's the most obvious, but it's just that this is a, like, this is not a region. Okay, like APAC is not a region, which I think is is like something people don't realize. So America, like the way I think of a region is you have a set of homogenous characteristics that allow you to group a region, right? And therefore, 
there should be some efficiency of scale and coverage as a result of having, you know, things dedicated to the resource, the region, whether it's resources or investment or whatever. So you could say the Americas is a region because um, they all speak English, for example, like or at least in North America and Canada. Um, and they have like, you know, very sim- like they have some free trade agreements in place and they have like very similar regulatory environments and so on and so forth. And they have like this common industries. If you think of like an industry heat map of the Americas, um, even with Europe, which is a little bit more diverse, there is still the EU concept that brings things together again, regulation wise, currency wise, et cetera. And then everyone just like APAC. But APAC is, APAC is India. APAC is Japan. APAC is. Southeast Asia and Singapore say APAC is Australia, New Zealand. And honestly, the four of those could not be more different than each other. Um, and so I think it's just how diverse, how diverse it is in every sense, in um, ethnicity, in culture, in language, in currency, in regulation. Like it's, it's super diverse. And um, when you think about, especially for me, it's always been developing a go-to-market uh, and building a business in in a region, um, the way you think about that changes completely when you add all this diversity and therefore complexity because you just can't do one thing and kind of hit a lot of scale with it. You have to take a very and an APAC customer specifically want you to engage them locally, right? That is going to be a differentiator for you if you go to Japan and able to present your marketing materials all in Japanese and speak in Japanese and also kind of respect certain cultural dynamics there. That's going to help you. It's a competitive advantage versus any other MNC, but doing that um, uh, efficiently with limited resources and investment and stuff, that's the challenge. So um, that's the big difference, the diversity in APAC for sure. So why did you sign yourself up for this challenge? And I think you stepped it up by being like the GM for, no, managing director now for Carta, right? And yeah. now not yeah, just Asia, right. but APAC. So you added more yeah. even. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, well, I did it because I love problem solving. Back to why I left audit as well. Like the more complex, more interesting the problem, the more attracted I am to it. I just think that that's fun. <laughs> Maybe I'm crazy, but um, I, I love that. And so... Um, that's why, you know, when I got the call from one of our co-founders in Anaplant, I said, hey, do you want to move to Singapore and go like kind of help do this Asia Pacific thing? I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty fun. Um, even though everything's going super well over here, like that's an opportunity to build something. And I really like building things. So I like problem solving. I like building things. And so um, when, you know, basically when I came up on my time at Anaplan, right after we had sold the company, but well, we had been a public company and that was really exciting. We went IPO in 2018. And then last year, 2022, we sold the company to private equity. And um, that was like a good, you know, time for me to think about like, okay, do I want to be a part of this next phase as well? Because so far I've been there for the whole journey. So it's just like, you kind of know what the next couple of years are going to look like. And for me personally, I thought this was finally time to maybe, you know, explore something outside and Carta came along and, and was just the perfect opportunity where we're really just at the at the very beginning of the journey of building our business in Asia Pacific, of kind of revolutionizing how ownership and liquidity works across Asia Pacific, the the and the emerging kind of startup and VC scene here. And and at the end of the day, it's a B2B 
SaaS software product, which I know super well um, now. And so it was just this um, amazing opportunity and super complex product and problem to solve. So I was like, sign me up. So let's talk about Carta now. I think you mentioned earlier uh, when you talked about Aniplan, whenever there's a new leader, um, they bring their own style and all these things. So with you now there at Carta, what is the style that you're bringing? And what would you say is the direction you're heading now? <laughs> Good. I kind of set myself up for this, didn't I? <laughs> yes, um, you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, obviously for any leader, I think, well, no, I shouldn't say for any leader. For me as a leader, the first 90 days, which, and I'm about 120 plus days in the business. So first 90 days are really about, to me, it's about listening and learning and understanding the context of what you have entered, right? Because every company, and I saw this at Anaplan, we were there for a long time, but we were like a different company every 12 to 18 months. Um, and so not jumping to conclusions, not being like, this is my playbook. This is how we're going to run it. Like just kind of just learning your environment, um, I think is super useful. It also kind of helps you uh, honestly just build some credibility with your team that this person has actually like tried to understand what's happening in our business um, rather than just just assuming they know more than they know. You, I mean, the best thing you can do is know that you know nothing, right? And so my first 90, like given where I am, I'd say we're kind of just exiting that phase where I think I've got enough sample size now to draw certain conclusions and or at least have certain points of view, which then I can try, iterate on and then put out into the world and then be challenged on. Um, and so that's kind of the that's kind of the phase I'm at right now. I mean, I think just to not completely dodge your question, I would say that um, uh, we have a big opportunity on the investor services side of the business. So everyone knows this is a cap table equity management company. If you're a founder, it's like get Carta, get your cap table in order, fundraise, you know, issue equity to employees. Like people know us for that. I mean, maybe not as much as they should, but still, like it, that's what we're globally known for as well. What people don't understand is actually Carta is equally, if not more capable on the investor side. So we actually have a whole fund administration business where we are effectively managing the entire back office for investment firms, predominantly venture capital firms, right? Um, and, and even more specifically, like we're focusing on a lot of emerging fund managers at the moment, but our product scales all the way from a first-time fund manager all the way up to really super established funds um, with uh, you know multiple funds, eight funds, et cetera. So um, I think that's a huge opportunity for us. And I'm super excited about it because if you think about the go-to-market for uh, a product like that, where you have um, you know fewer target you know, customers, but you know, maybe slightly more complex, more specific, it resembles more of an enterprise sales model versus like a, a mass market sales model, which happens to be my background. And so I, I feel like there's this huge opportunity there. So to your point, like what are the things that I'm thinking about? Not, I wouldn't say changing, but maybe changing the distribution of focus. I think you'll start to see us focus a lot more on investor services as an offering. Um, and we're already seeing a ton of traction in the market for that. So that's one. Um, two, I think you'll see us expand our presence regionally. So, so far, we've really been in Singapore. Um, and even that, like, again, not, we've not been the loudest, right? Um, but you'll see us now kind of looking across the region 
Uh, there are a lot of other markets that have booming startup and VC kind of going hand in hand. And so you'll see us expand our regional coverage quite a bit, which I think um, is super exciting. Uh, third, I think that um, you, you know, you'll also just see um, more and more as we get more, more investors on the platform and we get more startups on the platform. I think you'll start to see an emergence of Carta as the secondary marketplace for private markets. So when you think about those secondary transactions, whether they're share buybacks, whether they're you know, fixed price offers of, of secondaries tied to a primary round, or whether it's you know price discovery and auctions and things of that nature, I think that's a huge untapped opportunity. But as our core products grow, we're bringing together two sides of a very unserved marketplace, potential marketplace. And I think that's where, um, you know, again, Carta will potentially play in the future. And you'll see us like looking at more opportunities to facilitate that. Super cool. I, I do have a question, though. So what does your day to day actually look like? Um, maybe now that you're coming out of the like 90 day phase or what did it look like and what are you going to try to do more of as you transition out of that um, stage? Sure. Um, so I wake up at, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, I am an early riser and I'm, I'm a little bit early to bed. I, I have a two-year-old, so that just, I just, I'm mapping to his schedule mostly. Um, but no, my day-to-day, -day, these, so my day-to-day, -day, um, I kind of split it. So honestly, I have a very distinct, um, people who know me, Wednesdays and Fridays, I am in the office and it's almost all um, kind of meetings, but more specific to, than meetings. It's like really like human <laughs> engagement and, and interaction, whether it's customer meetings or partner meetings or sometimes some internal brainstorming sessions, things of that nature. So it's like there, there are certain Wednesdays and Fridays where I might not open my computer at all. Um, and so that's, I think, pretty unique. And then if you look at the other days, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, um, they're a lot more, I would say, um, analytical uh, in nature and a lot more um, kind of focused on operations, analytics, um, hiring, for example, like a lot of interviewing happening, so on and so forth, where I definitely have my computer open all day. And um, it's it's really kind of getting into the meat of things. So um, that's kind of what the week looks like for me. So I'm doing a little bit of both. Um, there's a, there was been a, there's been a lot of focus for me on hiring uh, in Q1. I mean, I, and I thank you for highlighting some of the open roles that we have as well. Um, we're growing. Like we're one of those few maybe uh, businesses that's really actively hiring, looking to grow the business when a lot of other people are doing layoffs and and, and reductions, which is you know, I'm happy to be in a position to provide employment opportunity. So we've got openings and, you know, sales for both of our products. We've got openings in marketing. We've got um, opening, a couple openings, I think, even in delivery. And so that's super exciting. So I've met a lot of fantastic people. And because of the way the market is, we get the opportunity to be a little bit kind of selective because there's a lot of really good talent available. And so that's pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, I think I mean that's that's kind of what we're doing, and, and and like you would imagine, I've just spent a lot of time meeting customers and our partners. Like our partner ecosystem is thriving, and I think the more entrenched we are with our partners, the more you're going to kind of see us collectively actually prop up the startup ecosystem in Asia, right? So it's 
us, it's VCs, it's accelerators, it's law firms, it's audit firms, it's media, it's, um, you know, uh, there's so many more, right? There's fractional executives, there's there's just a lot happening in this space. Uh, venture studios, the list goes on and on, right? So just making sure that I'm connecting with all of those people and, and kind of getting to know them, they're getting to know me and, and kind of figure out how we all um, grow uh, ownership and, and, and startup success in this region. What are you like shifting to do more of or less of now that you're coming out of the 90 day phase for anybody who's like starting out um, at a new executive role? Yeah, I, I think I'm doing um, I'm doing a little bit less operations now. So I think in my first 90 days, it was some of the low hanging fruit was just kind of cleaning things up, if I, if I can use that term, whether it's you know, the, the data we have, how we look at it, how we run operations on the back, how we forecast sales, how we come up with pricing, how we measure customer health, how we think about our pipeline, how we think about marketing ROI, like all the ops and analytics and just kind of the that's kind of math side of a business um, was low hanging fruit. So I did spend you know quite a bit of time when I wasn't in front of people, like on my analytical days you know, consuming, creating, modifying that to make sure that I felt like I have full visibility and hopefully a lot of, you know, control, not to control it, but meaning I could be agile and I know how to pull certain levers and really change uh, the way that our business is working. I'm going to probably be doing less of that now that it's the house is in order. There are a lot of, you know, I have support that people that can kind of keep the, keep it going, you know, refreshing data as we move incrementally. But um, I think those processes, those tools are set up. I think now we're going to shift a lot more to go to market, specifically on marketing and uh, partnerships. I think these are going to be the two big things that help us really scale. Not necessarily, they're not going to necessarily help us sell more next month, but they will help us build a business, which is very sustainable for many, many years to come. And so hopefully you will start to see Carta more. Uh, in general, uh, whether it's, you know, events, whether it's digital, whether it's hopefully, you know, doing some media stuff like this, um, that that's a big focus for us because we just want to increase kind of the, the awareness about who we are and therefore the education about equity and startups in general. Um, and also uh, partnerships, like I, I just mentioned, just getting super entrenched, getting super local, really localized, really plugged in to the local scene. Um, because those are the people who are actually making it happen on a day-to-day basis. And so we want to understand their pain points, understand how we can add value to them, their founders, and vice versa. I think if we do that, um, then growth will happen somewhat organically. So stepping outside of work, where can we find you on a weekend? Like not the location, but what do you do? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not you know, in your <laughs> location. Um, uh, well, like I mentioned, I have a two-year-old, so... I do spend a lot of, almost all my time outside of work, you know, trying to spend a lot of time with him. Um, so on Sundays, um, when we are at parks and uh, probably at you know, kid-friendly brunch spots um, and, and just, uh, uh, or in the malls, um, which, are, which are fantastic for kids. So that's where you can find me on, on Sundays. Uh, on Saturdays, you'd probably find me around Vidal. I live out here. Um, and so we'll just probably be maybe out on uh, the, the beach, East Coast, um, or maybe 
you know, hosting a few friends at our place or, or maybe, you know, hanging out at their places. We, we tend to be at each other's houses a lot more than going out. I don't know why that's happened. It's just changed. But um, yeah. And then during the weeknights, you'll see me probably out and about downtown because every night there's something happening. There's like a founders meetup or some, you know, panel chat. Like tonight, you know, right after this, I'll be going over down to HSBC. We're doing an event with them and Quest Ventures and a few others. So yeah, most weeknights we've got stuff on just kind of, as I said, spreading the good word. Do you have any other hobbies apart from basketball? Do you even play basketball nowadays? <laughs> I, I do. Um, I had reconstructive ankle surgery uh, last year, which was pretty intense. So I haven't, I hadn't been playing much last year. I'm starting to get back into it a little bit. And I'm very conveniently uh, located next to the Siglap Community Club, which has a basketball court. So it's just across the street. Um, so I'm starting to pick that up again. Um, in terms of my other hobbies, I know I sound a little bit boring. I wish I could tell you that I had like this. You're skydiving. <laughs> yeah, no, I love to go skydiving. Um, but no, nothing else. We, we just, you know, we just moved into a new house. Um, and so we've been renovating it. That's been a big project on the side. And I love kind of, uh, I think it's a stretch to say that I am kind of a, a designer, but I love interior design in general. So I really enjoy, I like kind of, again, reading up on the history of different styles and kind of trying to figure out what looks nice, you know, together. And, and that's, that's fun for me. So that's been my, my recent hobby is like just understanding what modern means and what mid-century is and what's, you know, bohemian and Victorian and classical and neoclassical, like all that kind of stuff is kind of interesting to me. Okay, I'm not that surprised that you're into design because I was wondering like how you conveniently have like a Carta thing at the back. And I'm guessing that's a newspaper clipping of Anna Plan. I can't read it, but it's yeah. just my guess. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you nailed it. So it's, it's actually all my 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 hop. So you've obviously got the Carta hat. You've got an Anna Plan uh, full page ad from the Wall Street Journal on the day that we IPO'd. So I got this newspaper. I was on the floor uh, of the, the stock exchange when we IPO'd. So I, I made sure to keep a newspaper. So that's that. I've got my Jordans, which is obviously because I play basketball and I love that. Um, so yes, obviously this is all kind of representing me and my interests. Is this modern design then? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what this is. This is IKEA, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is this is an IKEA Kallax in dark brown and black. <laughs> okay, they better sponsor you after this. <laughs> That's right. I, I want I want some feature from IKEA. <laughs> well, I, I guess to wrap up, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one question. I ask everyone who I speak with on the podcast, and that is, outside of work, what is one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? And for the timeline, this can be any timeline in the next one week, ten years, five years, anything. Yeah. Um... Well, obviously, I mean, like, okay, I'm just going to say this some foundational stuff, like, like being a great father and husband, I'm hopefully doing that so far. And my wife and I look forward to potentially having more kids as well. And, and um, so, so that, I mean, that's obviously the most kind of the most important thing. But I think in terms of like, semi professional, like outside of work, but still kind of in terms of like impact and purpose. Um, as I mentioned earlier, like one of the things I'm super attracted to is, is solving problems. And I think like some of the most complex problems that there are to solve in the world um, often kind of fall into what we think of as public policy. Um, and because, you know, you're trying to figure out like really foundational 
things but that are hard. Like, how do we make sure there's equity and, and equality in terms of the opportunities people have for education? How do we make sure everyone has, you know, like food and water in, in a sustainable way? Like all those kind of public policy and really um, kind of uh, the socio so, sociology type questions. So I think one of the goals I have um, is that I hope that through my uh, professional work, I either earn the opportunity or I earn the right or I'm able to um, you know, switch a little bit into solving more of those types of problems rather than maybe solving the problem of how does you know, Carla double revenue, um, because I think that would be really uh, interesting for me. Um, and so, yeah, maybe that means a career in, you know, policy or government or politics. I don't know. Uh, I'm not kind of tying myself or even a nonprofit, but something like that would be really cool. I'd love to, I'd love to work on that. And I think I'm, that's, I'm super inspired, honestly, by Singapore, obviously having been here now for six and a half, seven years and the kind of stuff that Singapore is thinking about. I mean, they've, they've, in, in a large part, they've, they've addressed some of the, the basics, like great infrastructure, you know. Um, healthcare, education, and uh, making sure people have homes, etc. Um, and then they're looking at all this like really cool progressive stuff, like how do we bring more companies here? How do we kind of reskill and change the way people think of talent pools here? Like I think that stuff is fantastic. But obviously, we've had the opportunity to work with um, EDBI, which is one of our investors as well, and just talking to them and thinking about what they do. Like I think it's super cool. I'm not a Singapore citizen, so I'm not eligible yet, but. Um, Yet. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Goes, I think I think what they do, I think what they do is really, really cool. And I'd love to do that either for Singapore or back home in the States or, or you know, maybe even for India. Like there's multiple places. I don't really worry too much about geopolitics. It's just about helping the communities that I am connected to and a part of. Well, thank you. This is awesome. I hope that when you get to do that, you'll still let me interview you. <laughs> Happy to. I, I really appreciate you kind of taking the time to, to chat with me. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And this is a great chat. All right. Thanks, Amanda.